Father, what a delight. What an excitement to have a copy of your word in our language. Not only to have personal reading and studying and meditating, but to corporately gather together to hear the word of God preached to our hearts. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help to anoint the preacher and each one that will hear. Anoint our ears, the ears of our hearts, to hear the word that it might take root and bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift, not of works, so that no one should boast. So wrote the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Grace. God's unmerited, undeserving favor. God's amazing grace. You can't earn it, and you sure don't deserve it. It is freely given, and it is to be freely received. But the problem with grace is that it is so unnatural to the human instinct and to the human experience. That's why pay-it-forward videos of random acts of kindness by total strangers, strangers, they go viral on social media. Because such acts of unmerited favor is so rare, it is amazing to see and to experience. Former UBC member Josh Reed, who recently had a severe and traumatic motorcycle accident in California, he made a very emotional Instagram video of his, from his hospital bed. And he cried tears of gratitude to God and the many people who gave time, talent, and treasure to save and to encourage his very life. He went into detail about the woman who pulled over on the side of the road after she witnessed his accident. Uh, she was a total stranger, and she sat there holding him in her arms and speaking tender, comforting words to him for at least an hour, he said, before the paramedics got there. Total grace. And Josh recognized the unmerited nature of such sacrifices by total strangers that he kept shaking his head and saying, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve any of it. Today I want to share with you two more scriptural portraits of grace and then try to help us understand how each of us can lead a more grace-filled life. I want to try to answer the yes but how question. I have no doubt that we've all been beneficiaries of grace. The problem is that many of us have a hard time returning the favor and showing grace to others. And so I want us to learn how we can take more risks by letting go and letting God use us to be instruments of his grace. Let's begin with the first portrait of grace found in the second Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, I want to give you a little background on this portrait which will really help us get a grip on grace. You remember the great King David of Israel? 
Well, it's good to remember he wasn't always great and he wasn't always king. He was a shepherd boy, the youngest of eight sons, and he got stuck doing the worst of the family household chores. But even, you know what he got stuck doing? Shepherding the family flocks of sheep. Even in that stinky, low-life job, God was preparing a boy to one day be king of one of the greatest nations in the history of the world. How many of you know that our God sees you when nobody else sees you? Our God knows what you're going through when nobody else seems to notice or even care. God was done with Saul as king, king of Israel, and God sent Samuel, the prophet, and priest to anoint David as Israel's new king. But you'll remember, Saul was not happy about God's decision. And so he tried to kill David and hold on to the throne. But God had his way, and David finally ascended to the throne after outrunning and outlasting Saul. Once David settled into the palace in Jerusalem, God sent the prophet Nathan to give David a warning and a promise. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his kingdom would last forever and that he would never rip the kingdom from David's family like he did to Saul. And David was absolutely humbled and amazed at the unmerited kindness and favor of God. Nothing but grace. He then began to praise and worship God for his amazing grace. And and then in chapter 8, 2 Samuel, we read that David defeated all his enemies, the Philistines, the the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Arameans, the Gigabites, all of them. The scripture, you'll get that when you get home later today. (laughs) The scripture repeats this phrase over and over, and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And the Lord gave David rest from his enemies all around him. And all the enemies I listed for you were enemies outside the kingdom of Israel. But if you read the history of Israel's kings, you'll understand that often there were some enemies of the newly established king within the kingdom. And often those enemies were found in the jealous family members of the outgoing king. And so the newly established king would often kill all the sons of the previous king who might rise up and lead a rebellion within the kingdom to challenge the new king. This is all important background information for the stunning portrait of grace that you're about to see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9 opens up with the newly established king David. He's wondering out loud, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Incredible. Other kings would have put it like this. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I haven't killed yet? Bring them to me so we can take off their heads. David's servant hear him wondering out loud, and they said, well, we don't know anybody, but, but there's this dude named Ziba. How do you like that for a name? Ziba, who was a servant of King Saul, maybe he knows somebody. And so they call Ziba, and David asks him the same question. Hey, Ziba, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can show some love for, for the sake of my my best friend, Jonathan? I remember 
King Saul was David's predecessor as king of Israel, and he hunted David down like a dirty dog because he was jealous of him and he wanted to hold on to power. But David and Saul's son Jonathan had become best of friends, and Jonathan helped David escape from the wrath of his father who wanted to kill him. Again, another kindness or grace that David had received, and he was so grateful for Jonathan's love and, and friendship that he, he wanted to show his gratitude by paying it forward to somebody, anybody in Saul's family. And Jonathan was already dead. He was killed in battle like his father, Saul. And because everybody in Saul's family knew that Saul tried to kill David, they automatically assumed now that David was king, he would be hunting down the men in Saul's family to eliminate the threat to his kingdom. And that's why David had to ask, is there anyone still left from the household of Saul? Not so that I can kill them, but so that I can bless them by showing them some love, some unmerited grace. The word in Hebrew is the word chesed. Verse 3, Saul Saul's servant Ziba thought for a moment and says, um, mm, uh, Yes, your majesty, I think there is still a son of Jonathan. But he's crippled in both feet. Now, why that detail about being crippled in both feet? We don't know for sure. But perhaps Ziba was thinking, King David, yeah, there is one dude left from Saul's household, and it's the son of Jonathan, but he's, he's of no earthly good to you because he's crippled. Not just in one foot, but in both feet. And King David didn't hesitate for a second, but he said, where is he? Go get him. Bring him here. Well, the servant went to get him, and in verses 4 and 5, we find two other interesting details. First of all, the dude lives in a town called Lodabar, which literally in Hebrew means the wasteland. Secondly, his name is Mephibosheth. Now let me add this up. You're crippled in both feet, you live in the wasteland, and your mama named you Mephibosheth. Dude, that's three strikes and you're out. That's the way I see it. Am I right? But for grace. Verse 7, David speaks tenderly to Mephibosheth and promises to give him the royal treatment. He commands old Ziba to restore all of Saul's land to Mephibosheth and to work the land for him and to give him the produce and that Mephibosheth will always have a seat at King David's table. Grace. Amazing grace. Now let's think about this. After all that David had to go through, running and hiding, ducking and dodging from King Saul, humiliated and hunted like a dog. Yet now that David is king and has the right for revenge on his enemy, including all the family members of his enemies, instead, David is looking for someone from his enemy's family to bless and to show mercy and grace unmerited favor. How in the world could this be? What makes this possible? Understanding grace and mercy 
You see, our natural tendency in dealing with people that hurt us is what makes it possible. Understanding grace and mercy in dealing with people that hurt us, that's what makes it possible to show grace. Our natural tendency, what is our natural tendency when we deal with people that hurt us? Anger, bitterness, revenge, severing relationships. But David shows no anger, no bitterness, no revenge, and no inclination to cut off relationships. Instead, he goes out of his way to find his enemy and welcome him at his banquet table for as long as he lives. And so here's what you have to do to, for us. Here's what we, we've got to do. If we're going to understand, if we're going to be people filled with grace, we've got to learn to forgive our enemies. We've got to learn to let go of all the hurts. Ask God to forgive them, and then count your blessings. Recognize how when you were shaking your fist at God, when you were spitting in his face, when you were sinning and offending him, he showed you grace and mercy. He didn't cut you off. He didn't pour out his wrath on you. He poured it out on his son so that you can be adopted to be one of his sons and daughters. Be amazed at the grace of God in your own life. And then you will want to show grace to others, even your enemy. But you see, if you think, if you begin to think in your own mind that you did something to earn God's grace in your life, then you won't stand amazed at God's grace in your life. And that's the problem with some of us. Some of us never been to prison, we don't do drugs, we don't smoke, we don't drink, and we think we're so good that we earn God's grace. And we're better than those other people that do all that stuff. And so when folks wrong us, it's very difficult to forgive, very difficult to let go, because we're thinking, we earned our grace, they need to earn theirs. And that's the problem. And then we begin to compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to others. And they think, we think that they don't deserve God's grace, therefore they don't deserve your grace either. And that's when the anger turns to bitterness and the bitterness turns to strife and the strife often ends relationships. You see, the ultimate purpose of grace, God's grace, to us is to reconcile relationships, both the vertical relationships and the horizontal relationships. By his saving grace, God saved us from our sins and reconciled us to himself. That's the vertical relationship. But then he intends for us to take that same grace that we've received from him and to restore the broken horizontal relationships all around us. Truth be told, we are all like Mephibosheth, crippled in both feet. 
and can do God's kingdom no earthly good in and of ourselves. And we all come from low to bar, don't we? A wasteland of insignificance compared to God's glorious kingdom. I don't care where you were born or what your family name is or heritage is, you're from low to bar. I'm from low to bar. We all come from low to bar, this wasteland of insignificance, but I love the way Swindoll puts it in his book, The Grace Awakening. He says, as we gather with the people of God in heaven at the great marriage feast of the Lamb, the tablecloth of his grace will cover all our disabilities and limitations. There we shall sit alongside Paul and Peter, Lydia and Priscilla, Mary and Joseph, James and John, Barnabas and Luke, the martyrs, the reformers, the evangelists, the pastors, the missionaries alike. But there will be no emphasis on rank or title. No special regard for high achievement. Why? Because we are all so undeserving. Every single one of us. Disabled, all of us. And oh, how we'll sing God's praise. When we've been there 10,000 years... Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's move on to the New Testament book of Galatians. What we call the book of Galatians is really a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And every letter written by every apostle, which is included in the Holy Bible, was written to address a particular problem, a particular problem in that local church, and then to offer a prescribed corrective, a prescribed solution to the problem. And so the issue facing the Galatian church was grace killers or legalists. And Swindoll clearly defines legalism this way. He says, legalism is an attitude. A mentality based on pride. It is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. A legalist assumes the place of authority and pushes it to unwarranted extremes. Legalism clings to the law at the expense of grace. So the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Galatia to address this dreadful spiritual disease. Look at what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, before Paul got saved, he was a legalistic people pleaser, seeking the constant approval of his fellow Sadducees and Pharisees, and even God. But then one day his eyes were open. He was, it was opened by God's grace to realize that God was already 100% pleased with him because of Christ's sacrifice. And on that glorious day of Paul's salvation... Paul received God's amazing grace and became one of the greatest preachers of God's grace the world has ever known. Now let's move on to Romans 12, Paul's letter to the church there in Rome. 
Here Paul teaches us how to live the grace-filled life. I want to start with verse 3 because our key word is mentioned here again in verse 6. Verse 3 and verse 6 mentions our key word of grace. And so Romans chapter 12, verse 3, you might not have it on your screen, but just hang in there. We'll get to what's on the screen. For by the grace given me, Paul says, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. There's that word again, grace. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Now, I want you to see some key phrases that will help us to be people of grace. The first one is to recognize that, again, as we've said before, all of us are recipients of God's grace. His grace of salvation and his grace gifts of the Spirit. We all have different gifts, different talents. And in order to be a person of grace, filled with grace, if you want to live the grace-filled life, you first of all have to realize what an incredible recipient you are of God's saving grace. And then secondly, his equipping grace. Every one of us have been equipped to serve. We have been given certain gifts and talents, not only for ourselves, but to be used in the body of Christ. That's why in Ephesians here, he mentions that though we're many, we're all one, just like what's on our dollar bills, e pluribus unum. Out of many, one people. That's Latin. E pluribus unum. Out of many, out of the plurality, pluribus unum, one. Same principle here in Ephesians. Though there are many of us scattered in this auditorium, those who are considered themselves this their church home, you have joined hearts and hands with us as members, you have been gifted to serve. The question is, are you serving? 
How many of you are not currently serving in a local ministry right here? You come each week, you sit on the premises, feed on the promises, but you don't serve. You have been gifted, but you're not serving. Just, to, just before the service today, a lady came up to me, and she's not even finished the membership class. She said, Pastor, I want to ask about the finance team. I've got some background in finance, and, and I'd love to serve in however I can. And she wanted to know more about the finance team and how she can begin to use the gifts and the skills that God has given her. And she has honed over the years in other places. Now she's here, and she understands that she's been saved to serve. How many of you are here, and you've been here for a while, but you don't recognize that you've, sa you've been saved to serve? You may not even recognize that you have gifts, that grace gifts that God has given you, and you're not using them. You know what that's like? That's like if I've got five fingers, but I decide I'm not going to use my thumb. Try living life for 20 minutes without your thumb working. Or how about your pinky? Or just how about a hand? Josh Reed is going to figure out now how to get along in life without, with one leg. And I'm sure he's going to be fitted in some months to come with a prosthesis, but life will not be the same for him. You know, they say you don't know what you have until it's gone. What if God was to suddenly take away a gift that he's given you? And suddenly you realize, I don't, how? And God's like, well, well, you haven't been using it, so I thought I'd give it to somebody else. If you want to understand and live into the, the, the fulfillment of God's design and purpose for you, it is to understand that you are a recipient of the many grace gifts of God. And in your attitude of gratitude, recognizing what God has given you, you now are looking for ways to serve, to use the gift that God has given you. And, that's, and then, then the other flip side is the church needs to let you serve. So the church leadership... The elders and deacons are, are to anybody that comes and says, you know what, I want to serve in this area or that area. It, it's important for us to recognize you have that gift and then serve. Now, some of you are mistaken, that's for sure. I've heard people say, Pastor, I want to be in the choir. I want to be in the worship team. Okay. Can you hit a note? The answer is they ought to be singing solo, solo that you can't even hear them. Because that's not their gift. I'm not trying to be mean, but that, they think that's their gift, but it's not. And we all can recognize when somebody's gifted and when they're not. But don't let that discourage you. Let's look and find whatever other th things that you are gifted in and make sure that you're rightly fitted for the gift that you have and you desire to serve where you want to serve. And that's the job of leaders, to help direct people to fit in the right place. And so over and over and over it says, 
Verse 6, according to the grace given us, if a man is, gifts, is prophesying, let him use it there. And the, the, the word man is the generic for person. If a person's gift is prophesying, let him use it. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let, let him encourage. If it's to give, some people are gifted to give. Did you know that? You say, well, no, I don't have that gift. I like to receive, but I don't like to let go of my money. Some people are gifted. They, they just love to give. They are happiest when they are releasing the abundance that God has put in their hands to be a blessing to other people. Um, doesn't mean that we all shouldn't give, but it means that some people have an extra measure of grace to give. Let them do it. Those who have the gift of leadership, they ought to be governing. Notice in your bulletin, we have several inserts. We have an insert for nomination forms for deacons. Do you know that we need people to serve as deacons? And that office is open to men and women. We have deacons and deaconesses. We have elder form nominations in your bulletin. That office is open to the men in the church to serve in that capacity. Today, I'd love for all of you to take these forms. In fact, when you leave here, there'll be a pastoral search team form because we need people to be nominated and voted on next week to serve on that team as well. Every single one of us has been given a gift or gifts to serve. And we need you to step up and serve. And in so doing, you will begin to live the grace-filled life of recognizing your gift and then using your gift. Recognizing it and praising and thanking God that he didn't leave you out. When he was handing out gifts, he didn't leave you out. Now, you may not have gotten the gift you wanted, but you got the gift that God gave you. Find out what it is and use it. And then now let's move on to Romans 14. Here's another way in which we can live the grace-filled life. Romans 14, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul, also writing to the church in Rome, says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. The man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, we live in a day today when people are crazy about food. There's some new stuff going on out there. Impossible Whopper. Anybody had it? I tried it. It was pretty good. Now, I'm a meatitarian. That's what I like to call myself, a meatitarian. I like meat. I ain't ashamed to tell you. You invite me to your house, have some meat. Otherwise, I'll bring my own. I like meat. But I'm not going to judge you if you don't like meat. You like that tofu and all that stuff. Veg vegetables, vegan, can't have this, can't have that. I understand. I'm, I'm not going to judge you. But now don't look at me when I say pass the meat. You understand? That's what Paul is saying here. There in the church in Rome, the legalists again were trying to say, listen, we all Christians, we... We like a bargain, don't we? We like a discount. So there were some Christians in the church in Rome who were waiting for the pagans to finish with their 
idol worship and their sacrifices, where they had sacrificed various animals to these false gods. And then, instead of throwing out the, the meat, the food sacrificed to those idols were on sale. So the Christians are like, okay, I can go pay full price over here at the meat that was not sacrificed to idols, or I can go to the pagan friends over here, and I'll get 50% off my meat. I'm going to get 50% off. Other Christians were like, well, you can't eat that meat. It was sacrificed to idols. How dare you eat that meat? It'll defile your body. You're a Christian. You're supposed to be holy. Look at you over there buying that meat from them pagans. Paul's like, really? Is that what we're fussing about? The one who eats meat, let him eat meat, and he's going to give thanks to God for it. He got a discount. You're paying full price for yours. Let's not argue about that. That's not important. That's what's going on in Romans chapter 14. The problem is sometimes the legalists will nitpick on little things and make it a big thing. And we all have to learn that don't sweat the small stuff, right? We, we have to learn that. I've got to learn that. We all have to learn that. Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't make a mountain out of a mohill. Don't be so critical and judgmental in your spirit against your brother or sister in Christ. There's no law against some of the things that we make a law out of. So both of these passages in Romans continue teaching the one of the primary lessons of a grace-filled life, and that is letting go. Just let go. There is such incredible freedom and peace in letting go. When someone wrongs you, forgive them. Let them go. Give them up to God. He will discipline them. Obviously, if someone's committed a crime, like sex abuse, physical abuse, any other form of violence, you've got to call the police and, you know, avoid to avoid further damage to yourself and others. But we're not talking about such sins as crimes. We're talking about petty stuff. And to, to let go is so freeing. But many of us, again, who are legalists, we want to control. We've got control issues. So, here's, I love what uh, Swindoll shares on this. Really insightful thoughts on what it means to let go. To let go doesn't mean to stop caring. It means I can't do it for someone else. Some parents need to learn these principles of letting go. To let go is not to cut myself off. It's the realization that I can't control another. To let go is not to enable, but to allow learning from natural consequences. To let go is to admit powerlessness, which means the outcome is not in my hands. To let go is not to try to change or blame another. I can only change myself. To let go is not to care for, but to care about. To let go is not to fix, but to be supportive. To let go is not to judge, but to allow another to be a human being. To let go is not to be in the middle of arranging all the outcomes, but allows others to affect their own outcomes. To let go is not to be protective, it is to permit another to face reality. To let go is not to deny, but to accept. To let go is not to, to nag or scold or argue, but to 
search out my own shortcomings and to correct them. To let go is not to adjust everything to my desires, but to take each day as it comes. To let go is not to criticize and to regulate anyone, but to try to become what I dream I can be. To let go is not to regret the past, but to grow and live for the future. To let go is to fear less and to love more. Isn't that why we often don't let go? We are afraid. Afraid of what might happen that we can't control. Someone has said that fear is a vision of the future where God is not present. Think about that. Fear is a vision of the future where God is not present. Because obviously you've got to be there because God is not there, so you've got to take control of everything. Because obviously you can't trust God in the future to be there and to handle it. I read a few acrostics for fear. F-E-A-R. False evidence appearing real. Forget everything and run. What fear means. Forget everything and run. And finally, or face everything and rise. Face everything and rise. So now that we know what to do, it's just a matter of deciding what we will do. It's a matter of the heart now. We know what to do. Now the question is, will we do what we know to do? Which direction will we go? Will you continue to live in fear or will you walk in faith? Faith is the grace-filled road. Let's stand as we worship. Every head bowed, every eye closed, this is God's time of receiving worship in response to the preaching of his word where his will has been revealed to us. Again, Father, we are grateful that you have preserved your word for us in our language. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to own a copy of your word, to gather, to assemble together publicly, to preach and teach your word, to sing the truths of your word without fear of reprisal. And so, God, now would you give us grace to respond to your word. Thank you for your grace that is already present to respond to the word preached to our hearts. What's God saying to you today? Are you living in fear or by his grace in faith? Are you living the grace-filled life or are you still holding on holding on to regrets or to hurts of the past, refusing to let go, not knowing the outcome and what it will be, not willing and able to trust God for the outcome when you let go. Are the relationships that you're holding on to so tightly because, again, you live in fear? Let me tell you, you're missing out on great freedom and great joy. Here's what I want you to do. Just hold your hands up 
by your side and open the palm of your hands upward. And just say to God, Lord, I let go. I let go of the relationships I need to let go of. I let go of the controlling ways. I let go of controlling attitudes. Oh God, help me to let go and to let you have your will and your way in my life and in theirs. Lord, I pray you would help us to let go, that we might live the grace-filled life that you intended for us. We've all been recipients of your grace, and we're so grateful. Help us now to show grace. Help us to show it in how we relate to one another. Help us to show it in letting go. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take the responsibilities we need to take up in finding a place to serve. Help us to use the gifts that you've given us and to find a place to serve you. We have been freed to serve. Help us to serve with gratitude of the grace we have been received. You're so good and we're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.